Later, we'll meet comedian and writer Tony Hinchcliffe. But first, Greg Proops. He's an actor and a stand-up comedian. You know him from his work as an improvisational comedian on Whose Line Is It Anyway, a show he now does live as Who's Live Anyway. We sat down and talked to him during JFL 42. Nice to see you. Thanks, Richard. It's great to see you. You know, it's almost like looking into a mirror. I know, right? <laughs> I met you downstairs earlier. I'm like, we're both wearing black suits, uh, both wearing black ties, the glasses, the hair. Yeah. It's You're like my brother from a different mother, That's they right. Say. That's right. Um, there's a, a lot to talk about, but I want to go back a little ways. I want to go back to the, to the very beginnings of when you realized that making people laugh made you feel good. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the first comedy that made an impression on you. Was it on television? Did it, did you see someone live? Was it a funny uncle? Uh, my family had a sense of humor, a sardonic, a morbid sense of humor. Um, I think probably uh, Laugh-In might have been the show that really turned me on the most when I was a kid. It probably came on when I was about six or seven. I mean, I loved Batman and The Addams oh, yeah. Family and all those shows, but um, and I thought The Addams Family was a riot. But Laugh-In was pure jokes, and when you're little, you don't want any um, soppiness or romance <laughs> or slow songs or anything like that, and so I thought that was genius. Uh, I didn't, of course, know that they had kind of ripped off Ernie Kovacs format, right. which I didn't learn till later. Uh, and and I thought, um, that's really good. And then I started to act up in school a lot. And in seventh and eighth grade, I was too short and too squeaky voice to really do anything. But by high school, I had enough confidence to finally go on stage and uh, uh, perform and do all the variety shows and rip off old. We used to do Abbott and Costello yeah, for yeah. high school. Yeah. Well, it's funny because uh, you talk to a lot of comedians and they learn timing from memorizing George Carlin mm. records and all that stuff, right? And, and that's what they do in the variety shows. You're not writing your own jokes. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, we would do other people's routines. We, we did an early version of Gallagher where we would smash vegetables or whatever, and <laughs> although we didn't know who Gallagher was or anything right. like that. Um, yeah, and also the, all the old-time comics were still on TV when I was little. Jack right. Benny and uh, uh, George I, Burns. I remember Henny Youngman. Oh, hell Henny, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I saw all them too, and I was wildly influenced by that. And and then watching old pictures uh, with my parents, uh, the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields and whatnot. So, and, of course, Lucille Ball, who was ever-present on television. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I, I really dug Lucille. You know, Lily Tomlin and uh, George Carlin, and, and I always have. I still do love them a lot. And Jordan, Joan Rivers. Yeah, I still remember memorizing the hair piece. I'm oh, aware yeah. of some stare at my hair. In fact, to be fair, some really despair at my <laughs> hair. But I don't care. It goes on forever. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, because those records, and, and I, I, I think it's hard to overestimate how influential those records were for a generation of, of people. Because George Carlin, uh, in particular, uh, was was... It felt like counterculture yeah. if you weren't part of the counterculture. Right. You know? For me, anyway, it, it felt like a, a window into a world that I just knew nothing Absolutely. about. Absolutely. And so hip and knowing and yeah. informed and uh, a million voices and lots of background. And I was too young to be hip and, and yeah. counterculture. You know, you're just a kid and you haven't done any drugs or anything like that. And you listen to these elaborate routines. Uh, yeah, that, that's the other thing is comedy LPs um, were so important then. Kind of the way podcasts are now, I think, to young comedy fans. For us, our generation, it was definitely listening to comedy LPs and memorizing them. Albert Brooks' Comedy Plus yeah. One, which was a really abstruse sort of high concept album that on the flip side of the album he provided a script and you were in the routine with him that's right yeah, yeah I remember that yeah. And, yeah and Georgie Jessel even came into the routine yeah. who was a vaudevillian which is to give you an idea of how it makes me sound like I'm a thousand years my <laughs> wife always goes why do all your stories start with gum cost and nickel or whatever <laughs> <laughs> right the Cubs had just won the World Series it was 1908 <laughs> well I, 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 but I, I think like all 
comedy, whatever you're doing in, in performance, I think that looking backwards is as important as looking forwards, knowing where you came from and knowing the roots of it. I agree. I've always, I've always dug the history of uh, comedy and show business. And uh, um, I, I think without it, you, you don't have any information uh, to know what has gone on before. I think a lot of people dive into things and they don't, either their parents didn't introduce them to anything or they didn't have an older brother or sister. Right. Yeah. And I think it's critical to kind of have older kids or people uh, influence you and hip you to stuff. I was hip to the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band by kids in school. I was hip to Cheech and Chong by the kids in school. You know, the older kids who yep. were like cooler, like were like, listen to this. It's really <laughs> funny and wild and weird and you, you won't hear. I remember um, there was a DJ in San Francisco named John Gilliland on KSFO and he had a comedy hour every night at like 10 o'clock and I would stay up in my room with my radio and that was where I first heard Monty Python on vinyl before they were on TV, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's just critical to your comedy um, uh, knowledge and history uh, to have someone curate for you, I think. Well, it's interesting because we live in a world now where all that stuff has never been more available. If mm. I want to listen to Monty Python, I can do it. If I want to listen to George Jessel, I don't know exactly who that is. I can, I can find out anything I want to know. But I don't think people do it. Some do, yeah. but I think that, that instead of opening the world up in this really amazing way that the internet could for us, it's made us more tunnel visioned. I think that if you are uh, – uh, a heavy metal fan, you're just going to go deep and you will find everything about heavy metal, but you're not necessarily branching out into mm -hmm. other arms of music. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of a shame. It's there. Well, that's, I mean, part of the reason why my wife and I do the podcast is, excuse me, <clears throat> cough, um, is, is that very reason. I said to her when we started, I, I would bring up an album or a book or a movie, and I'd say, surely everyone's heard of this. Right. And she would go, no, you have to understand you're teaching a 101 pop culture class, which means everyone hasn't seen Serpico, everyone hasn't seen The Godfather, <laughs> everyone hasn't listened to Occupation Fool, yeah, yeah. everyone hasn't listened to uh, uh, Richard Pryor. Um, and you, no one, you know, no, people need to know who Nina Simone is. And so people write me and they go, I never listened to the Ohio Players before, right. or I never heard of a Lily Tomlin stand-up album before. And they thank me because I'll bring it up on the show. So I feel like a lot of what we're doing is curating uh, just stuff to people to listen to. And I have no truck with what's going on now. Like a lot of people do shows about current movies right. and current music, and I don't care. If that's not my world. It's not for me to talk about, uh, as someone said to me years ago, you've reached the age where you don't have to talk about it. <laughs> so I'm trying to, like you say, open up the world yeah, yeah. and show people that there's all these zillions of things that happened before that are really cool and hip and you should know about them. You're going to get uh, Justin Bieber and Cardi B and yep. the Avengers. That's going to happen to you whether you want it to or not. Yeah, yeah. P uh, podcasting has changed things for you. A lot. Mm. It, 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 in what you say, sort of in, in my reading, kind of opened things up for you in a way that I think at a certain point in your career, you said, ah, comedy is not doing that for me right now. And then you discover podcasting and, and everything's different and new. And it's exciting to have a new outlet. It's so true, Richard. I've been doing stand-up for a thousand years and I was in a club in Atlanta and I was kind of drunk and I was eating like this fried sandwich and it was a Sunday night and I'd heard myself do the same act a thousand times and I thought I'm not loving this the way I used to this isn't getting me going and it's doing a disservice to the audience because right. you have to be fresh and have to have a take so right after that uh, I was offered a chance by the two cats who do um, 
uh, Jimmy Pardo and uh, Doug Benson's show, Matt and Ryan, they came to me and they said, um, why don't you do a podcast? And I said, well, who should we have on? Do we, should we do authors and whatnot? And they went, why don't you just talk? And so I did the first one, and I spieled, and uh, uh, my wife afterwards said to me, Jennifer, she said, um, this is what you should do. That's it. This is your show. Yep. You can freestyle. You can go backwards. You can go forwards. I make mistakes in the show, but I'm a big subscriber to Leonard Cohen, who said it cracks are where the light shines through. So anytime I make a mistake, instead of skipping over it, I amplify it. Yep. Whereas in stand-up, you'd kind of try to hide it and move on because you misspoke. If I misspeak in the podcast, I'll browbeat it like Edward Lear. I'll keep coming back around <laughs> on it over and over and over and over until I make something out of it. Yeah. So it gives you the freedom and the leeway to do that. Um, I just did a TV interview where they said, it gives you the freedom to not be funny. Well, that's not exactly how I would put it. It gives you the freedom to not, you don't have the deadline. <clears throat> yeah. When you're a stand-up, if you don't deliver a joke every th 15 to 30 seconds, you're not really being a stand-up. Right. You're just talking. Um, whereas in a podcast, we can talk like we're talking now. We can extemporize and we can go from topic to topic. And as during the Obama administration, when I started, there were weeks when the news was slow. And there was really nothing topical, you know, other than, yeah, yeah. you know. And now, of course, it's, as Dana, my friend Dana Gould put it, Watergate every five minutes. Right. So because of that, it's an avalanche. And now people sort of listen to the show to help. They want me to sort it out for them. Like, I, I try to always remain a voice of hope and not hopelessness. I don't want people to get overwhelmed and let their life, you know. This is a very triggering week this week with all the predation going on. Listen, I, I think that uh, we in the media, whether it's, you know, more traditional media like mm. radio or television, uh, whereas where I mostly live or podcasting, whatever, whenever you've got a louder voice, I think that these days it's incredibly important to put out a message that, you know, the world isn't turning to crap completely. Yeah. We have to keep an eye on things. Things aren't great right now, but there is a light. Oh, always, always. I mean, imagine if you'd been a broadcaster in 1939 yeah. or, or 1968. Um, it's never really been different. There's always been tumult and chaos. And chaos is the brand that makes everybody feel confused and gaslit all the time. And I think trying to ground things is good. More with Greg Proops coming up after the break. And then a little bit later on, we'll introduce you to Tony Hinchcliffe. He's the host of the comedy podcast, Kill Tony. Greg Proop says podcasting changed everything for him. You know him as a stand-up comedian, as an improviser on Whose Line Is It Anyway? Well, right now, we talk about how he chooses what he'll talk about on his podcast. It's called The Smartest Man in the World. Well, I'm not bound because um, uh, I don't have major giant corporate sponsors, right. and I don't work for like enormous corporate... I mean, I do when I do Who's Line or things yeah, yeah. like that. But in the podcast... Um, I can actually say what I think and say the truth. And I try to keep those two things separate. Um, and I'm, by that I mean um, I cite n news information sources. If you listen to a right-wing talk show person in America, they go, well, this happened and this happened, and they have no facts to back it up. Right. They're just bloviating. And I'm real meticulous about uh, this is from AP, this is from Reuters, this is from the Wall Street Journal, this is from... And I'll read right-wing and left-wing sources. I don't believe there's two sides to every story. I think there's a million sides to every story. Well, I think if you believe that there's 
two sides. Generally speaking, now what's happened is that politics has become sports, mm. and you are either on one side or the other, and there's no nuance. There's no, you know, if you're a Maple Leafs fan and a Habs fan, mm. you don't root for the Habs just because the Maple Leafs are knocked out of the playoffs. Right, right. And and but that's what's happened in in politics, and I think that because we have no nuance anymore, and people live in echo chambers. Mm. You know, the right wing watches Fox News, left wing watches MSNBC, right. or depending on what news. You, you tend to, to to live in an echo chamber, and that is, I think, the most dangerous part of all this that's happened is that the the space to have uh, opposing opinions gratefully accepted by everyone and nuance put out there is disappearing. I agree, and I think a, a part of that is the giant function of that Fox News has. Um, change the level of discourse from, I, I said to someone the other day, it's hard to believe, but once upon a time in the Republican Party in the United States, they had intellectuals. <laughs> and by intellectuals, I mean learned people who came at you with a giant opinion backed up with all of these sources, whether it was the Bible or history, whatnot, and they were considered smart. Now there is no more intellectual wing of the Republican Party. They are a, a party of QAnon and, and weird conspiracy theorists and Reddit, and they've sunk down to the Alex Jones level, where they talk about things like people turning into lizards and Hillary Clinton running a, a pedophile chain out of a pizza parlor. Barack Obama smelling like sulfur because yes. he's the devil. So yeah. that has ruined discourse. I'm fully willing to have... Uh, um, a discussion with someone I disagree with. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to come at me with a spaceship landed and made Democrats into fluoride monsters, then they, I, don't, I can't talk to you anymore. Yeah, yeah. That's where that goes out the window. Um, and I think there's a difference between opinion and just being a horrible person. If we disagree about how taxes or the tariffs or something, that's a political discussion. If you don't like uh, black people or homosexuals, you're an awful person. That's not a political stance. Yeah. That's just being an awful person. <laughs> it's interesting talking about the podcast because you you prepare, obviously, but you throw yourself at it. And I love what you said. Um, uh, if I make a mistake, I, I double down or I, I go back. and Because that must come from years of doing improv on stage and, and just having to have your mind working all the time, but not being fearful of, of making a mistake or, or of not being 100% prepared when you walk out on that stage. It's important, I think, not to be fearful. People always ask um, performers if they're scared to go on or do they get nervous. And it's kind of an irrelevant question. And the podcast has even abrogated that even more for me. Now I look forward to, <clears throat> excuse me, seeing what could happen right. as opposed to planning everything that might happen. But that's a confidence that comes with years of doing yeah, it. Yeah, I'm old. And I've been on stage a long time. And, and I'm confident enough to know that... If I have a, I almost always do it in front of a live audience podcast. I do it at home sometimes at what we call the Fortress of Prupitude or the Porpoise of Fruititude. <laughs> so I made the mistake of calling it the Porpoise years ago. So yeah. now it's always a porpoise, um, which only makes sense if you listen to the show. <laughs> Otherwise, why would you go? Why are you broadcasting from a porpoise? Um, and and uh, I, I realized you can't control everything. Yeah. That, but within the chaos is where anything funny happens. Anything that's really genuinely funny that I've ever... Uh, you can write funny things, obviously. I'm not negating writing. But the way I like to work is if a mistake happens or a, a rabbit hole opens up, I can go down that and then maybe something better will happen than what I planned. And, <laughs> and, 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 the, and you're getting a response immediately from that audience. They're the guide. And that's why if I do it in front of a live crowd and they're bored, then I know I'm not hitting it. Right. 
Right. The live crowd's my barometer because live crowds don't pretend to like you. They're not. You go into Richard, you're in show business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You go into a meeting and you try to be amusing, yeah. and fi- people will humor you in a show business meeting, and they'll go, oh, "That's a great idea." That's and then, very funny. Right. And after you leave the room, they're like, "That stinks. We're canceling." <laughs> Bye. But regular people don't have that ability. Yeah. Regular people don't pretend to stand up for standing ovation. They don't pretend to laugh. They actually either laugh or don't laugh. Yeah. Uh, they're making decisions as they go along. And, and you know, for, for me, uh, I don't have the comic gene. I don't have the gene that, that many comics have that when people aren't laughing that they say, you know what, I'm going to stay up here until something funny happens. Mm. I'm going I'm to win them over. If I'm hosting a big event or something and my jokes are falling flat, my first reaction is to run and hide. Panic. Yeah, panic <laughs> and get the hell yeah. out of there. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a natural reaction. Uh, but, of course, I don't care anymore what the audience thinks. And I think that's what frees you up as a comic. And, and you know, that, and that can only come with years of it. I mean, yeah. I, it, for years in my career, I tried to emulate, particularly when I first started in radio, I tried to emulate – you know, back in those days, it was people like Charlie Tuna and, right. and like these big time radio jocks that were, had these unbelievable voices and, and seemed to be able to, to, uh, hit the post, you know, talk yeah. right up until the music started over an intro on a 45 and, and, and whatever, they were flaws. And I tried to do that and I was awful at it. And it wasn't until I had the confidence to simply be myself that I got successful at this. Well, you and I were having a conversation before this, which is always exciting for the audience to break the Aristotelian <laughs> unities and take us back off stage previous. But uh, that was that's the very key to it, I think, is uh, in comedy, there's a, it's a tried and true cliche, but it's true. It's called finding your voice. Yeah. And um, when, a, when a comic finds their voice, then that's when they don't care anymore. Um, I, the, three, the two quotes that I always go to are Bill Hicks, who said, less jokes and more me. Yep. And Lenny Bruce, who said, I'm not a comic, I'm Lenny Bruce. And that, I think, is where the, then you finally get to what the source is. It's like, if you read an author, their first three or four books may not be their best books, although often that's different. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes musicians, they surprise you 40 years into the career and go, you go, oh my God, they're still hitting it on all cylinders because they're so great. And I've seen a lot of musicians who are in their 70s in the last yep. few years and they're superb. So that whole idea that you run out of ideas or that you just repeat yourself isn't true at all, I don't think. I think you kind of find yourself somewhere in middle age. Well, and by middle age, I, I mean I'm going to live to be 116 that, years old. That's right. Well, that, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's how that works. You're listening to my interview with comedian and improviser Greg Proops. When we come back, we'll talk about his friendship with Robin Williams. You know Greg Proops from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Maybe if you get lucky enough, you'll see him live. The show's now called Who's Live Anyway? He plays in the UK, all over the US. I caught up with him recently when he was in Canada. Here we talk about his new comedy album. I just did a new album, and uh, I had a bunch of material I prepared, and I wrote a couple things that I'm quite happy with. And then I improvised a bunch of stuff, too, which, of course, came out just as funny, which tells me that I can't <laughs> predict whether my writing's going to be better than my improv. Well, it's funny. I just watched the Robin Williams documentary, yeah. and uh, the producer of his Live at the Met show said, oh, we road-tripped that thing forever. Yeah. We were on the road, and we did the whole thing. And then Robin gets up at the Met and improvises, I can't remember, it was a 40% of it, right. and that's what made it in. He yeah. said he didn't do half the stuff that we had that we had planned and that worked in front of an audience. Because 
he was in that zone. He was in that moment, I guess. He was an extraordinary. I, I had occasion to know him. I'm from San Francisco, yeah, and he yeah. was a San Francisco guy. And he always called me Mr. Proops, which I couldn't have been prouder of. <laughs> he never called me Greg, and all the time I knew him, he would go, oh, Mr. Proops, oh, how good to see you. Oh, oh, oh. And uh, we did a bunch of shows together, and we improvised together, and I interviewed him. Uh, we did a, the last show I remember was 2010. He had just done Conan, and the next night we were doing a show at Yoshi's Jazz Joint, um, which is no longer there, but it's in San Francisco. And um, we were standing backstage together, and he came in very shy. He was a shy cat. Yeah. yeah. If you just were hanging with him, he was, he, he, oh, hello. Yeah. Uh, it, but once he got on stage, of course, he was the Tasmanian devil. And um, I said, um, I'm not going to introduce you because we're in San Francisco, man. I go, there's no, you know, yeah, you don't no introduce need. Robin. <laughs> I go, let's just bum rush the stage. And he goes, oh, all right. We walk out on stage together, and that's it. Yeah. He did maybe an hour and a half. I just threw him the ball every once in a while. There's pictures of us, which I'm so grateful for. No video, sadly. And I'm doubled over laughing the whole time, of course. Wow. Um, he was able to extemporize. He had the combination of um, no fear and absolute total re instant recall. Mm -hmm. Anything he'd ever heard, seen, or digested in his life, he right. was able to, yeah. The Rolodex, uh, to use an ancient yeah, word, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was there. And on top of that, he could play. So I could throw him the ball, he could throw me the ball, you know, like, um, the, the, he never lost the childlike um, quality, which is so important. Like Jonathan Winters, yeah, who was yeah. his idol, who I also had occasion to meet, although I never got to work with him. Um, I interviewed Jonathan a couple times, and he would do an old man character when he was old, yeah. which was funny. All of a sudden, he'd be going like this, and you're like, you're 80. You're, and, 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 he used to go to the grocery store and improvise, um, Jonathan Winters, and, and where he lived in Montecito. Yeah, like, yeah. He'd just go anywhere and improvise in front of people. He'd walk into the bank and go, hey, and there, and there. All of a sudden, he's an Indian chief in the yeah. bank. and Half the people liked it, half yeah. the people didn't. He didn't care. I remember seeing Robin Williams on The Tonight Show, and this was, I guess, during the Leno years, and I don't know if you remember, but they used to, uh, as the act was being introduced, the person being introduced, they'd show them backstage, waiting right. behind the curtain, and Robin was standing there, hands clasped, head down, and as soon as that curtain opened, boom, yeah. this light happened. You know, you could really feel the, the difference between the offstage and onstage Robin Williams. No question, and he also was someone who... I've never seen another performer. I've seen the Rolling Stones and David Bowie and this and that. Uh, uh, people loved him. Yeah. They were vibrating with excitement because he was there. There was the, the light, like you say. He gave off so much love, and people loved him so much that when he was just in the room, people were losing their minds. And I've never really seen that with another comedian. I've asked British comics, and they said Billy Connolly in the day. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've yet to see it since then. There's magnificent comedians who will, in, you know, trap you in their world of goodness and yeah. and spin a web of trickery about you. But he had that extra special rock star charisma. Yeah. There's there's a lot. I, I, one of the things I do is interview famous people, yeah. and 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 so you meet lots of them, and it's that that very rare handful that feel different than the rest of them. And I can tell you, Maya Angelou was one uh -huh. of them. Oh, there I was bet. just a difference about her right. than, than there was anyone in the room. And it's interesting, when I met her, I met her initially at a party, and I didn't know what she looked like. Right. And and I walk through, and then I see her, and I'm like, that can, that can only be her. She yeah. is different than everyone else in this room. I was once at a cocktail party in New York City, uh, and uh, it was 
um, Alan Cumming was there and, and Steve Croft from 60 Minutes. A mm. lot of like famous New York people were right. at this party. The door opened and Clint Eastwood came in and it was for one of his movies. We were, we were there to, to, to have a look at one of his films and he walked in and the, 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 shape of the room changed. The the, yeah. the the room tilted towards him. And people are like, oh my God, Clint's here, Clint's here, Clint. Oh my God, Clint's here. Right. Behind him was Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, and no one noticed Leo because Clint wow. Eastwood had that thing. Yeah. Wow. It's a crazy thing. And he had it a lot longer. It's astonishing. How, Maya Angelou was quite tall though, wasn't she? She was, but she was sitting. When I, when yeah. I spied her, she was sitting. But honestly, it just felt different. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, my wife said Allen Ginsberg. She, my wife worked at City Lights for years, and wow. she said he, not only did Allen Ginsberg have that charisma, he was better with people than anyone she ever saw because people would flock to him yeah. because he was a guru and a sage, a Buddhist and a Jew, a beat poet and a philosopher, um, a homosexual and this everything. Yeah. Uh, 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 People would come up to him and be like, I pour their soul out to him. And he would very zen, like, take it on board, make eye contact, hold them. And then she said, like, a zen alarm would go off and the people would go, bye, thank you. And he had that ability to, like, wow. next, without pushing anyone away. He, uh, this is an interview, isn't about me, but I was at a party mm -hmm. once and, and uh, Alan Ginsberg was at the party. Uh -huh. I did not know this. It was a giant, it was a Saturday Night Live party after party. Right. And uh, someone came to me uh, and said, you're a writer. Uh, you, I have someone you have to meet, and he introduces me to Alan Ginsberg. Mm -hmm. And it's four o'clock in the morning. We're drinking. You yeah. can probably still smoke in yeah. places back then. Yeah. There's a haze of smoke everywhere. And I said, Alan Ginsberg, the last time I, I saw you was in Toronto, and you had a poem that the refrain was, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. And he said, well, I've written some new verses to that. Would you like to hear them? And on a dance floor oh, in New York at 4 a.m. in the morning, wow. Alan Ginsberg recited a poem off the top of his head to me. That's fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah, those are the moments you yeah. can't replace. You cannot replace those. No. Um, so the, you've got the podcast going. You're doing stuff. Yeah, how do I follow Ginsburg? <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and we've talked ourselves. Uh, we've talked ourselves <laughs> into many, a bit of a corner. Too many titans. <laughs> <laughs> and and but you're busy all the time. I am. I've got a new album coming out that'll come out in October called The Resistance. Um, it was recorded a month ago. Um, it's tried to be as topical as humanly possible. It's absolutely about what's going on now um, and the cage. I had to choose the titles of the tracks uh, carefully because um, I, I didn't want it to be too on the nose because yeah. it is satire. Because one of the tracks I was going to call Caged Babies. Right. And, um, and then I, there's a woman president routine that I like a lot that I wrote. So I, I want a woman president, but she has to have certain qualifications. I want her to be a known predator. You grab her by the man bag. That's what you do with men. I want her to dismiss men's looks all the time. Look at that guy. He's a taper. His knob's so crooked you can herd sheep with it. And I found that that was the way in rather than talking about uh, 45 every second of it uh, was to kind of back that up. Then um, I'm on the road with uh, Who's Line. We're out for a month. Uh, that's Ryan Stiles, me, Joel Murray, Bill's brother, and I'm um, Jeff Davis, who's on Harmontown, and Bob Durkatch, who was the Second City Toronto musical director for 25 years. Yeah, yeah. Then I go back to L.A. and we do Nightmare Before Christmas Live with the Hollywood Bowl. I know. It's exciting. And that'll be really fun. That's with Danny Elfman and John Masseri. Um, uh, do we need to wrap up here? Uh, we're we're all, we're two minutes away. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, because uh, there's a John Masseri story. John Masseri was um, Leonard Bernstein's protege. Right. And so we did the show last year at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. And now we're having drinks after the show, and I'm a little misty. And I said to my wife, I'm going to run and tell John that I love him, and I'm so impressed with him. And because I'm post up, right? Like where I am. Right. Well, he's conducting, so he sings with me. Right. 
and cues me. So as I come up to him, I'm about to say, John, what a pleasure. And he goes, Greg, it's so awesome. It's great to work with you. What a wonderful spirit you are. And I enjoy singing with you. And I <laughs> and I just burst into tears. Yeah, in absolutely. So he, he cut me off there. Then I'm going out on the road with Colin Mockery. We're going to Australia and New Zealand, me, Colin, abroad. Then we come back. Uh, then we go to London and Paris. We do the podcast in London and Paris. And then we're doing... Um, uh, at Shakespeare and Company in Paris, which is a really fun place to do the podcast. I, I was just there. Oh, my God. Just the best there. bookstore, isn't it? Yeah, and great pastries. Next door, mm. amazing books in the main Yeah, part. they opened up the coffee shop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then um, then we're doing a Royal Albert Hall on the 15th and 16th in London with um, Colin Me, Brad, Jeff, Josie, Clive, the original host, and Laura and Linda. We're doing two nights of Who's Line. So. Wow. Yeah, I'm busy as the devil. I can't. I'm blessed, as they say. Greg, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Richard. What, what a, a pleasure. pleasure. Man. What fun. Thank you. Cheers. That's Greg Proops. He's a busy guy. Perhaps you'll get a chance to see one of those shows. Later, stand-up comedian and writer Tony Hinchcliffe, the host of the comedy podcast Kill Tony, stops by. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Tony Hinchcliffe's 2016 Netflix special One Shot is not only hilarious, but the entire special was filmed in one continuous take. He's a regular on the Joe Rogan Experience and hosts his own weekly show and podcast called Kill Tony, which has over one million downloads a month. Uh, welcome. Hello. It's good to be here. Nice to see you. So you're here for uh, JFL. All your shows are sold out. So there's a rush line. People can line up and cross their fingers and hope to get in. Yeah, you know, a lot of my fans are stoners or, uh, you know, things like that. Maybe they forgot they got tickets. Maybe they, <laughs> you know, ate too many maple uh, syrup covered bacon donuts. Mm. We had the, those at the last place I was at. Yeah, those are, that's, a, that's a good Canadian cultural reference yeah. right there. I like it. I like it. Um, let's go back a little bit. Who were the first comics who, who made an impression on you? Uh, David Letterman, very early on. Jim Carrey really was a big one in Living Color and uh, all the great things that he did. I mean, amazing. I was a lot more into physical comedy back then, and I was obsessed with Jim Carrey. So actually what happened was is when I would go see all of his movies, and when he came out with Man on the Moon right mm. before I went to high school, the summer between eighth grade and my freshman year, I became obsessed with Andy Kaufman. And again, even though that's not really my uh, style of comedy, it is a style that I loved to watch at the time and was really into it. So I ended up going, I saw Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey and it, it educated me on Andy Kaufman. And I ended up going to the library and doing all my own research on him, you know, wow. seeing if uh, he was still alive and this and that. Like, I totally <laughs> took all the bait on in the uh, in the movie and yeah, wanted to believe. It's like he's believe. living on an island in Hawaii right. somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, I mean, just became obsessed with comedy. That's really where I learned that you can even do comedy. I always saw comedians. I would watch HBO specials. You know, my mom would, we, we would watch Chris Rock and you know, old Richard Pryor specials and things like that. But I didn't realize you could just perform nightly at clubs. Like, sort of like there's a scene in Man on the Moon right in the beginning where the comedy club owner is firing Andy Kaufman and saying, like, Andy, I don't think I can pay you. And that's when I realized, like, whoa, he was getting paid for that, for what he was just doing on stage? That sounds awesome. Like, it sounds so much cooler than what I was told were my options what as were a kid. Those? Oh, in Youngstown, Ohio, a tough, you know, old steel town, they teach you, you know, you're either going to be a doctor or a police officer or a fireman or, you know, pretty or, much that's or it. Or work at the, the big steel mill. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. There's just so many options and art is not really one of them at all. I actually used to want to be a DJ really badly right. when I was a kid. I used to sit in front of my 
little radio back when they had dual cassette things and I'd record the songs right off the radio onto a cassette and then I would if it record other songs and I would hit pause and do my own little middle thing coming up next on Hot 101 we have an exciting one for you this is Ace of Bass the sign it's 75 degrees we'll be right back you know like that and then I would hit play on the cassette and so it's all about performing though it was always uh, it, the stuff you wanted to do was in front of people or at least putting yourself out there it's weird it was but I was like shy about it you know my again you know in high school the theater director kept trying to get me to go into it and I was just too shy she yeah. said that I there's no doubt that I'd have a natural knack for it this and that and it's weird I ignored her I never t did anything and then sure enough a few years ago I, I went on an audition to uh, be the lead role in Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. And I, again, no musical theater background whatsoever. And I made it all the way to uh, the final cuts to be Josh Gad's replacement on Broadway. Wow. With no experience. Were you freaking out a little bit at the, as it got closer and you think, man, this could actually happen? 100%. Yeah. 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 I started counting my chickens. <laughs> I kept picturing what it would be like to be a New York stand up comedian, like this, you know, this whippersnapper from Los Angeles that went from Ohio. Ohio to yeah. LA and uh, I kept picturing what my apartment would look like. I looked up how much money I was going to be making every night on Broadway, the lead role of the most, you know, Tony award winning play. Yeah, yeah. Pictured what my intro would be like at the stand up spots. You know, <laughs> the comedy seller here, you can see anything. You know, this guy was actually the lead role in Book of Mormon tonight, and he's here for you right now. Make some noise for Tony Hinchcliffe. Like, I pictured it all and then didn't get it. So, but but it was you know an honor to even get close, and it's just proof that uh, that that musical theater director back in high school was right. Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah. geez, Louise, I almost got Book of Mormon for crying out loud. So, why'd you go to L.A. rather than New York uh, from Ohio? A lot of comics have told me you don't go to L.A. until you're fully formed because the industry's there, and if they see you and you got a great ten minutes. And then they go, what else you got? And you got nothing else, then yeah. you're in for a world of, of hurt. Yeah, I don't know if I really buy into that theory because uh, if, you, if you go there after getting really good from New York and then they see your 10 minutes and they're like, what else you got? And then you don't have anything, <laughs> then you're really yeah, yeah. in trouble. Because uh, that never ends. You always need a new 10 minutes after right. that 10 minutes, no matter what. And I've always looked at it like, why be, and I'm not saying New York's a small pond, but anywhere else is a small pond. Why be a big fish there? But honestly, it's the weather. It's the zen yeah. energy, sort of. It off balances. I'm already, a lot of people already think I'm a New York comedian if they don't really follow me. Like, right. they, I get that vibe a lot. So... I like, I, I just, it gives me some peace. It's nice to relax a little bit, look out and see a mountain or a beach or a palm tree. And I'm really into that type of stuff. The little bit of relaxing that I can do, I, I like to do. So I'm speaking with uh, Tony Hinchcliffe. You can hear his podcast, Kill Tony, over a million downloads a month. Uh, he's here for JFL 42. Shows are sold up, but maybe there's rush line tickets. You might be able to fight your way in. Yeah, for sure. When did you uh, figure out what your voice was going to be, what stuff you were going to talk about, what topics you would cover? It sort of happened organically. I was built late at night at the comedy store. I got a job working there following in the footsteps of Jim Carrey and David Letterman, a lot of those guys that I liked as a kid, Richard Pryor. Uh, and 
I got a job there, and there, if you work there as a door guy, you get spots, weird, crazy spots. And like Mark Marin talks about that a lot, how yeah. he did that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I started at, you know, you start at 1.45 a.m., and then maybe the next week you're at 1.30, and then 1.15, and then, you know. What, it's what are those 1.45 spots like? Uh, are there, are there people where in you the really, audience still? Uh, yeah, there's a, there's some people maybe, you know, anywhere between four and maybe 20 right. and that, and they've, and you also got to remember, not only is it 145, but they've watched 15 of the best comedians in the world at that point, yeah, 15 yeah. comedians better than the person in the 145 slot. So that's really where you get to find out what you are because yeah, yeah. like the act goes out the window there's no pretending there's no make-believe because they can see right through it they've already seen mark Marin, bill bird joe rogan Chappelle popped in yeah, yeah. he brought up chris raw chris brought up <laughs> hannibal hannibal you know it's just what they're seeing there at the comedy store is so crazy that it's literally the opposite of Big fish, small pond. It's right. everybody's a regular size fish in that aquarium. And so that's really where it happens is the middle of the night in L.A. You get built. You get broken. You have a meltdown. You lay down on the stage yep. and stare up at the ceiling and talk to the crowd. You know, give them something different that they haven't seen, something real and raw. And sometimes in that position, you can steal the show. Sometimes you can be the last thing they remember after all those guys. You know what I mean? Like, who's that Who's that one guy? You know, and you sort of stand out to yeah. him. And that's where you can really figure out what's what and what you, what you really are and what you're really good at. Because, again, they can just see through everything once they've seen all the best comedians. It's funny. I remember Jim Carrey doing stand-up here. Uh, before he went to L.A. You and, personally remember oh, yeah. it? Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I knew him a, a tiny little bit uh, when from the clubs and from being around when he when he lived here. Yeah. And uh, it was impressions, you know, Henry Fonda impressions and mm -hmm. very kind of, you know, out there maybe for the for the moment, you know, for the for the 80s. But but it would have fit in, you know, at any club in any part of the country. And then he left, went to L.A. And it was at the comedy store that the revelation happened, yeah. you know, for him that everything changed and that he threw away all the stuff he had done before and just completely found something different. And I guess that happened at one forty-five in the morning. Yeah, that's exactly how it happened. And that's exactly where he did it. And that's a big part of the reason why I ended up at that exact club was because of him and that story and the Andy Kaufman thing and the man on the moon. And it all is wired together from how deeply him and that movie affected my childhood. Yeah. It really was a place that when I got there, I think if you look, put any place or any anything any passion on a pedestal like that like a big pedestal you get more out of a thing like that if right. you think you're walking into another rinky dink comedy club and you treat it that way it's going to treat you that way but i i look at that comedy store in la like as a as the you know the the temple of doom mixed with you know <laughs> the uh, the vatican yeah, yeah. and and i and so i give it that respect and i like to think that you get more out of it and it gives back to you a great place to figure yourself out and showcase and get better and learn new things. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, that that's all wired into one another. So I really have Jim Carrey, Toronto's own, to thank for that yeah. because really 
that's the main reason why I was lucky enough to have that path and create that path for me. I couldn't wait to try to be a door guy there after working in restaurants and, you know, waiting tables and busing tables and polishing silverware and bagging groceries. I looked at being a door guy at the comedy store, like being, you know, the president of the United States, which actually it might be easier nowadays to be the president of the United States. But uh, But you're probably not making any money as a doorman. You're there completely for the foot in the door. Oh, yeah. Starving, starving. I mean, uh, I would go I would sleep in the back seat of my car at that time 11 years ago. Wow. I'd go get my car up, up from off the hill and pull it in the back alleyway behind the comedy store and get out and grab my blanket and pillow from the trunk, throw it in the back seat, curl into a little fetal position. And imagine how many comics have done that before you. Jim Carrey. Yeah. And again, yeah. another one. I didn't feel bad about it at all because I knew he had done it. Like his whole thing sort of put me on this weird path of like, it'll all be okay. And I mean, I'm not Jim Carrey, obviously. I'm not a $40 million movie guy. But yeah, I'm having a lot of fun, and I love my life, and it's all because of the uh, Torontonian, Jim Carrey. Let's leave it there, Tony. Thanks so much for hey. coming in. I appreciate it. Hey, of course. My pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest, Tony Hinchcliffe. See him at JFL42. Also, check out his uh, podcast, Kill Tony, uh, a million downloads a month. Awesome. Thanks so yeah, much. Indeed. Uh, thanks to Andre and the board, and thanks to you at home for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.